So, okay. So that's basically the terrestrial side of the enclosure. You have the branches, the plants, everything, everything's planted. And now you've, you know, you've constructed this 260, whatever it was, gallon, basically aquarium that comes off it sort of like an L shape. So if anyone's listening, just picturing like you have this four meter by six, four meter by essentially two meter deep enclosure that's kind of at the back of a room and then you have a, 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 on the left hand side we'll say jutting out of a, an aquarium attached to the so yeah. a, so tell me about that because that, that as you had mentioned earlier that the idea was to pull the water feature out of the enclosure so it's not taking up floor space but i'm curious how does the snake move in between those how is that thing functioning okay so welcome back to another episode of the animals at home podcast my name is dylan perrin and thank you so much for tuning in today today i'm speaking with anka mertens who is a snake keeper out of belgium she's also been featured in an episode previously just a couple back when we had dr zach lofman on discussing his new book the natural history and captive care of false water cobras and other xenodontine snakes that's not a mouthful we had anka we talked about her because her enclosure for her false water cobra is actually featured in zach's book and it is this mind blowing incredible enclosure and a ton of people were actually asking about that enclosure and wanting more information on it after I posted Dr. Lofman's episode. So I thought why not just do the real thing and have Anka on to discuss it. So in this episode we talk about why she got into keeping false water cobra or what attracted her to that species and sort of the evolution of her care from the beginning the first enclosure that she had for it and this incredible large sort of four meter wide two meter deep enclosure that's sort of ceiling high. It's with a giant 260 gallon aquarium. It's a beautiful and incredible enclosure and as we mentioned in this episode this type of enclosure is not reasonable for everybody it's it's not reasonable for me it's probably not reasonable for you but there is so much great DIY type information that you can learn from this episode I mean when you ask when you talk to somebody who spent essentially you know ten thousand dollars or more on an enclosure that they built by hand there's so much you can extract from that as far as knowledge and experience so I had a blast chatting with Anka it's just an incredible episode her enclosure is amazing I know you will enjoy it let's jump into it well Anka thank you very much for being on the podcast thank you for having me you know, I recorded the episode a couple, maybe months ago now with Dr. Lofman about the false water cobras in his new book that came out. Of course, your enclosure is featured in that book and we featured it in the episode as well. And just that section of that episode, people were just commenting on YouTube and on Instagram and people really wanted to know more about your setup. And, and you and I were kind of chatting through DMs and I thought, you know what, it just makes so much sense to have you on and we can really break down this uh, incredible enclosure that you've built for uh, an amazing species of snake that really deserve a lot. So I want to, I do want to get into that, of course. But and the, the fact that you that was your first snake is even a more of an interesting uh, wrinkle into it, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about why that happened as well. But I'm curious, did you start? Have you always kept reptiles, or because I know you sort of came into snakes a little <clears throat> bit more recently? But were you keeping reptiles before that? Not at all. Um, okay. Actually, I've wanted a snake since I was six years old. Um, my mom is terrified of snakes, reptiles in general. She was like, "You will not get a reptile in my house." You can get one once you live alone, but it's not coming into my house. So we would go to Disney World when I was a kid in Paris. Because, um, yeah, I'm from Europe, so for me it's Paris. Um, and at the end of the trip, we could buy one thing from, like, the little shop at the end. My brother would come out with, like, Disney plush of, like, Mickey Mouse. And I would come out with a massive rubber snake that was as realistic as I could get it. <laughs> um, and then I would walk around with it for months on end around my neck because I really wanted a snake, but couldn't get one. So for years and years, it was just looking online, doing research, looking into which snake I kind of wanted to get 
as a first snake myself. Um, and there the idea always came for the king snake. Always loved Mexican black king snakes just for the fact that they're jet black. Um, and then things happened. Uh, I got to live alone, bought a house. Before I even moved in here, I had the first enclosure ready. Um, so yeah, my snake had an enclosure before I even lived here. And then before I moved, the state came up with a new law, a list of snakes that would become legal to keep, or in general reptiles, it's not limited to just snakes. Um, and the list is extremely limited. So I this think. is basically like a positive or a white list telling you yeah. the species you're allowed to have, not the species you aren't allowed to have. Exactly. Um, it's in, in Dutch, it's called a positive list if you were to literally translate it. And I think there is about 100-ish, I think 106 or so snakes on there, which is really not that much if you look at the amount of species there are. Um, one of them on there, or not on there, is the false water cobra. Um, the only way you were allowed to keep any of the snakes that were not on the list is if you had them prior to this law becoming active, which was about three months after I moved into my house. So that's how I got to the point where, okay, I really always knew I wanted a false water cobra, just not as a first snake originally. But then that luck came to be and the choice had to be made. Do I go for it? And does she become forcibly my first snake ever? Or do I not get her and never get one? Mm -hmm. And well, that choice was very quickly made, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That, so was your plan, if, if the law wasn't going to come into place, like let's say that didn't exist, your plan was to start with a Mexican black, a Mexican black king. Is that the enclosure that you already had set up ready to go for a oh, Mexican no. black king? Oh, okay. No, no, no. Um, as soon as I knew the list was coming, I knew also that she was going to be my first snake. Okay, and I gotcha. got a nearly seven foot by two foot by three foot enclosure for her as a baby. Um. Wow. So a lot of people tend to go towards those sizes for an adult. That was her baby enclosure. And after about a year and a half, I already thought personally that that was way too small for her with the amount that she was exploring and moving around. It had a pond in there about 100 liters, <clears throat> 100 liters, which would be 26 and a half gallons. Mm. But about, at about a year old, it was already too small for her to really swim. She could soak, of course, but not swim. And it was one of the most enjoyable things to watch when she was young. And at that point, I was like, okay, this enclosure can be used in the future for another animal that doesn't get as big and as active. She really needs something bigger. And so the plans for the big enclosure started. Do you remember what initially drew you to a false water cobra? I mean, I'm sure you were doing lots of research. You were thinking, what's my first snake going to be? You must have stumbled across them. Was there something that jumped out? Like, A, was there a moment you remember actually finding them? And B, what about that species was something that you thought, I need to keep this? In general, any video I watched of people keeping this species, they would always come back to their intelligence, how inquisitive they are, how curious they are. They like to explore their really active snakes. Um, for example, personally, I don't keep anything like a ball python because I know they're not active. You won't see them that actively during the day. I work during the day. I'm home at the evening, sure. But 
when their lights go off, I'm going to bed too, usually mm -hmm. around the same time. So I wouldn't never really see a snake that's active at night because I'm in bed. And of course, I enjoy seeing my animals from time to time. So yeah, a snake that's extremely active, semi-aquatic. I like stuff like aquariums. So the idea of being able to combine both was already quite intriguing. I have a huge fascination for plants. My house has, I think, about 300 plants in it. Wow. So yeah, being able to combine big enclosures with big species of plants is also quite fun because, of course, they will thrive way better in an enclosure with lighting and watering and live insects and everything than just in a pot in your in like your living room. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, with the falsies, just the way they act, how active they are, you really can see that they recognize people, which is one of the things I mostly learned owning one. But once she knew me and my boyfriend, she wouldn't like go hide or be scared. As soon as anyone came in that she didn't know, she would instantly be gone. Yeah. You really notice like which people she was calm with and she recognized. And as soon as there was anything she didn't recognize, she would instantly go hide. And then of course the added factor of they can hood, but they're not as dangerous. It's always a cool factor, even though she basically never hoods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's an extremely chill false water cobra, I must admit. Um, she's a common snake I own, uh, and I own a few species that are considered very handleable. Um, but yeah, generally their way of acting, how active they are, the fact that they swim, the diversity of food they eat can literally feed her anything and she'll be happy with it. I'm pretty sure she would try and, and steal a bite of a cheeseburger if you gave her a chance. <laughs> so yeah just in general the whole species also really love their coloring the little yeah. like eye eyeliner patches yeah yeah so i want to jump back into her in a second but obviously you bought her and then you also have as you'd mentioned you'd acquired a, a couple other species so what what else do you keep now as well uh i have two mexican black king snakes which by the way also now are illegal to breed or trade in europe because oh, wow. they are Potentially, they can establish populations here. Mm -hmm. So under the decree of exotic species that could establish, they're no longer allowed to be bred. So the same story now. If you had them, you can keep them. You're not allowed to sell them or breed them. Um, I have a pair of Mandarin red snakes, which are a relatively uncommon species. And then the most rare species I keep are rough-scaled pythons, uh, Morelia cajinata. Um, hoping to breed them. Uh, did pair them this year, but without success. So hopefully more success next year. But yeah, they are a very uncommon species. Very little is known about them. Can't even find a proper lifespan for them. Yeah. Well, so, that's, that's quite a deviation from the other more clubrid or clubroids, I should say, after listening to or reading Zach's book. Uh, you know, where did the pythons come into the mix? I actually uh, didn't originally get them myself. Uh, a friend of mine kept a whole lot of species. He was stopping with the hobby and he originally contacted me because he had seen posts of my enclosure and he's like, if I want to drop my snake somewhere, I want them to be good. And he was like, if that's the kind of enclosure they get, you can have them. Yeah. Um, of course, I couldn't keep all these snakes. Um, that was too many. I prefer giving them nice size enclosures and keeping a bit less animals than 
getting like a hundred different animals and shoving them in racks. That's really not something I, I'm into. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the pythons, uh, considering how rare they are, um, if you just try and buy a single one, a baby is costing you about 2K. Mm-hmm. So for the price, I was able to get them, <clears throat> knowing it's a breeding pair. Yeah. It In that sense. case, I was like, they are so unique. I'm usually generally not a, into python species and boa species, but yeah, they're just so unique. They're gorgeous snakes in coloring and looks. So yeah, when uh, I saw his list of snakes and I saw a pair of those on there, I was like, yep, those I will claim. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think it would be hard to go wrong with a rough scale python, especially a breeding pair. That's that's really cool. So yeah. l- let's so, jump back to the uh, to the falsy then, if uh, unless you had another thing to say about the, the rough scales. Oh, just so hoping that they will actually get to breeding. <laughs> oh yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, that, that would be a, quite a project. So as far as jumping, you know, getting the falsy to begin with, I'm sure you found a breeder and I, I would love to know just about the story, A, about picking her up and getting her for the first time. Were you concerned or were you worried or intimidated? And then also, can you let us know her name as well? Sure. Uh, so I got her from a breeder in England. Uh, that was the only one that I could at the time find that had babies on hand uh, that looked healthy, that looked fine. Um contacted him uh then the most difficult part was getting a meetup set before the lab became active uh which ended up being the hum expo reptile expo in germany so we moved into my house on friday and then had a housewarming on saturday made the trip on sunday so that was four and a half hours there pick her up we never even entered the expo because there was we thought of entering we had an hour wait time before the breeder got there the line was so massive that we would never have gotten in within an hour. So we just waited outside, grabbed her, got in our car, drove back an hour and a, uh, four hours and a half because didn't want to open the box on the parking and risk her getting out. Yeah. Godo was overexcited and then had the shaking hands because she was still a baby and so tiny and I was scared of hurting her and yeah, had me waiting so long, finally getting my first own snake. So. I was like, I want to hold her and I want to handle her. But at the same time, she just had a trip from England to Germany to Belgium. So I was like, take her out, check her out for a minute, put her in the enclosure, leave her alone for a bit. Like stuck to the leave the animal alone for a few weeks first, let them settle in, make sure they eat well, which with a fall season, not really that much of an issue to eating well. Um, yeah. And yeah, then after a few weeks, started the regime of handling her frequently to getting her used to being handled expected to be bitten because it's a baby snake you're a huge human they don't know you so she did beat me quite a few times as a baby honestly never personally got a reaction of it we were always just there she never latched on and kept chewing Mm. always had a little spray bottle with vodka on hand in case she were to latch on and hold on just to have an efficient way to quickly get her off um and a bank card of course to like get under the <laughs> under the t- teeth if necessary but yeah 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 generally just mostly went into it with thinking rather have her bite me as a baby a few times and be chill as an adult which now she is she did bite me recently once but that was just me being busy in the enclosure on plants and i didn't see her sneak up <clears throat> she <laughs> thought there was food 
just to slowly retracting and she just like nicked my tongue. So it wasn't like a proper bite, just like a little nick. But yeah, generally speaking, once she take her out, she's very calm. Um, and yeah, besides that, I think if you've done your research and you know what you're getting into, you know you'll get a snake that grows really fast. It's most likely going to bite you a few times, especially as a baby. They won't hold back that easily in terms of biting. So yeah, I think if uh, you want to get that kind of a snake as a first one, yeah, having done your research and knowing what you're gonna expect is quite a, a must in that regard. Yes, yeah, it's not gonna be a ball python. That's gonna be pretty calm and slow. It's a fast-moving, yeah. hungry snake. Yeah, we definitely not recommend them as an impulse buy. Like I said, like uh, since six years, I wanted one. I moved into my house when I was twenty-two, so that was sixteen years of basically constant research and watching videos on reptiles, different species different setups they need, the requirements of the different animals, the risks with different animals. Because back in the day, for example, hogs were still allowed. You could keep venomous back in the day right. here. So then there is a thing of, would I want to get one of those? If yes, what kind of training would you want? Because in America, there is regulations of like, you need to work under someone to get like a license for rattlesnakes or for cobras or for mambas. Here, that wasn't the case. Back in the day, everything was allowed and you just kept it if you wanted it. Right. End of discussion. And after a whole lot of things going wrong, people releasing animals that definitely shouldn't be here in the wild, um, knowing that the only venomous snake here in Belgium isn't lethal. If people start releasing hogs that are lethal, they can pose quite a lot of threats. Um, but regardless of that, also people buying erratic on a expo as a baby because it's nice and cute and tiny. Mm -hmm. And then it grows into this massive six meters, 20 foot snake, which they can't feed because the meals they eat are way too big for them to buy. They can't house them properly. Um, they would get dropped off at rescues. And it was becoming such a big issue that yeah, or people, snakes that are endangered or reptiles, uh, cases with turtles, endangered species that were like taken from the wild, kept in someone's garage, being sold on the black market. When um, a lot of those cases pile up, that's how the positive list came to be, basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You, you, as annoying as a positive list is, sometimes you can, can't really blame the government. You're like, well, this is kind of what's happened over the last like 10 years of letting people do whatever they want. So yeah, it, it is an, a frustrating thing, but at the same time, you can kind of understand it. And um, can, can you remind me of her name again? Tanuki. Uh, Tanuki, um, that's, oh, that's right. What does it mean? It actually means uh, raccoon dog. Oh, okay. It's so is it, what language is it? Uh, Japanese. Oh, it's Japanese. Um, okay. Raccoon dogs are uh, the Japanese variant of raccoons. They look yeah. a bit similar. They have like the same eye lines. Okay. And um, there is a funny mythical thing around them that um, might not be safe for uh, younger viewers. <laughs> <laughs> so we can let people Google that on, them, on their own. Yes, they can uh, look up the Tanuki lore. <laughs> Tanuki lore. Okay, that'll be a mission for anybody listening. They can go figure that out on their own. Um, so, did was she successful immediately in that large enclosure? Like, did you have any worries at any points, or was it like right away she was okay? Uh, she was actually quite okay. Me, on the other hand, um, 
that is a different thing. Because she was quite small in such a big enclosure, she got to hide herself quite easily. And of course, as a first snake owner and all the stories you hear about snakes escaping, yeah. you if you don't see her for a certain amount of time, you start to panic. And then there was me being like, this enclosure is full of live plants and everything. Do I go tear it all down because I can't spot her anywhere? <laughs> or do I just wait it out? Yeah. And then the longer you wait it out, the more panic you get. And at some point you do tear it all down only to find her somewhere hiding and be like, yeah, I'm a complete idiot. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, after a while you, you just accept that. Yeah. She'll be hidden for sometimes like sometimes a day, sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. You can't help it. It's a snake. And if you want to see your animal all the time, that's not the kind of enclosure to get, but at the same time, then a snake is also not the animal to get. Yes. Yeah. I, I did the same thing with my with my little Japanese rat snake. I had a pretty large enclosure and he's just so small. I mean, when they're curled up, they're just, you know, tiny. And so many times I'm like, well, he figured out a way to get out. You know, like there's, even though I don't think there's a way to escape, he must have escaped. And then, yeah, like you said, you tear everything up and there he is, uh, you know, curled up in a tiny corner and then you feel bad because you've just destroyed his home. So yeah, most, as long as you make them, you know, real tight enclosures, they, they probably aren't going to get out and you just let, let them be. Yeah, exactly. Like I have my Mandarin red snakes that are like about two foot that are in like a four foot enclosure. If they're rolled up somewhere, they're about yay big. Yeah. Like they, they are snakes that are fairly small. They're for colubrids also quite thin bodied. So they really, despite their bright yellow colors, hides all the time. They're always burrowed. So I think in general, I see those snakes maybe... 15 times in a whole year. Yeah, yeah. And you just accept it. It's just how it is. If I manage to breed those someday and someone wants to buy them from me, I'll be honest about it and be like, they're gorgeous snakes. You'll just never see them. Yeah. You'll yeah. have to accept that. That's one of the reasons why I really was interested in getting a falsy. They are so active. And once they get to a certain size, they get a bit braver in just being out in the open when there is a lot of movement. Back in the day, I would start to get the vacuum out and she would instantly go hide and mm. by the end she would see the vacuum move and be tracing it all the time thinking that was food <laughs> yeah so yeah is there anything that jumps out immediately that you learned in the first few years of owning a falsy that you think would be helpful for somebody that might be interested or you know whether you know there's a few things that you say like if you don't like this then you shouldn't get one or vice versa uh, a few things one as many people say they're uh, waste does have a potent smell. Yeah. Um, I will admit um, my enclosure are fully bio bioactive. They have a bit of variety in critters in there. And usually within a few hours, it tends to break down the smell quite a lot after a, a poop. But what I usually also do is if I do see that she just dropped one, plane in the open in the front, I'll just throw some dirt on top of it because it will speed up the process of the insects getting on it. Mm -hmm. And the dirt will also dump the smell of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also their strength. Um, I really, really, really underestimated their strength. Um, in her first enclosure, I can provide you some pictures if you want, uh, of what I used to be like, mm -hmm. I created in the water compartment, a waterfall. And I had attached it with like a big amount of silicon on three different points. And when I say a big amount, like 
pieces like this fully covered in silicon. Yeah. It was completely stuck against the glass in the corner with then just the space for the tube to run up. Over time, somehow she managed to not only push her way in between that silicon, the glass and the waterfall, but she completely dislodged the whole thing, including the whole compartment that was separating the pump from the actual water. Like it was hidden behind the waterfall, so she couldn't get to it. But she right. completely ripped off everything there just by consistently getting more and more in between and then pushing up and going in between and pushing a bit more. And eventually she got the whole thing out. And for the last half year she lived in there, there just was no waterfall and the pump was just loose in there because there was nothing to separate it. I couldn't just go fixing it that quickly. Yes. Um, yeah, the strength they have, uh, I think... I quite underestimated. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's a good one because I, I've only seen one falsy in my whole life, and uh, just just like a couple months ago, really. And yeah, they're obviously very powerful snakes. They're very. I mean, if they're going to be a good swimmer and good climbers, you need to have lots of core strength and whatnot. So that can be a pretty intimidating if you're not used to working with an animal like that. It's probably good to start as a baby. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. As a baby, they're quite easy. Like it's a one foot, like 30 centimeter little noodle about mm -hmm. as thick as my thumb. Even if she does bite me, she can't even take more than a finger. Yeah. Um, as soon as they, like at one year old, I think she was 120 centimeters, which is about four foot. Yeah. So yeah, they do grow significant at a significant pace. If I compare it to my Mexican black king snakes, my Mandarin snakes even slower took them like four years and they're still not to a size where I feel comfortable breeding them because mm -hmm. they're still so small. Whereas my false water cobra at two years, she was nearing like, I'd say a meter and a half meter 60, which is a bit over five foot. Right. And so how yeah, big is she now? That, um, I think she would be nearing the seven foot mark. Okay. I think she would be just about 200 centimeters, which is just under seven foot. Yeah, yeah. She's now yes. the length that her previous enclosure used to be. Right. So it's they, they are big snakes too. That's the other thing to remember. They don't, they're not small. Uh, she actually once bruised my neck. Um, I had a route. Uh, she was around my neck. And I had a top with a hole in the back. <clears throat> and she crawled through the hole and started slipping because it was like, quite a soft texture she couldn't really hold on to it and her first reaction because she started falling was just grab on and so she was around my neck and she was holding on tight enough to actually put bruises on my neck that's crazy so just goes to show the sheer strength they have like of course i just put her on the like leaned on the couch so she could get down and she let go but for the i'd say 30 seconds she was holding that was enough to actually put like three nice bruises down my neck. So yeah, they, they have a significant amount of strength and start, starting from a certain size, I wouldn't recommend people putting them around their neck just freely without anyone there, which I would never recommend with any bigger snake, not with a boa either. Mm -hmm. People yeah. consider them safe to handle solo, but I think any big snake, if they manage to get around your neck and they took their tail under, you can't get them off that easily. I noticed that very quickly that moment. Yes. I really love her and I'm very comfortable with her to get her out, but it did make me quite conscious about also what I wear when I get her out. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good tip. I'm the same way. I never put my snakes around my neck. I know how strong, especially the boas are. I mean, when they've had them sort of, sometimes they'll sort of handcuff you, you know, by just wrapping around your wrists and then you're, you kind of have to wait for them to leave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause you, you can't get them off and it doesn't take a lot of pressure to make you pass out, you know, with, you know, cutting off yeah. the blood flow to the neck. So I think that's a, that's a good tip. So I'm, I'm just curious, you, you set up with this large seven foot enclosure when you did that were you initially expecting that to be her adult enclosure and then you realized later on that you needed to go bigger or were you always thinking that this would be a stepping stone uh it from the get-go was the idea of getting her something bigger down the line um the thing was more not knowing at which pace she would realistically grow like of course online they always say that they grow fast you can expect them to grow about this much in this much time but yeah, when you hear a lot of people say that they keep theirs in a six-foot enclosure as an adult, I thought like, yeah, I will have the time to build the big one. It's not going to look that small still. But then once she hit like four foot, in that moment, I already thought that it was getting small. So that's the moment where I decided, okay, the plans of starting the big build will start soon because I knew it was going to take a lot of time. Um, so I think, yeah, when she was about a year old, that's when we started the big build, maybe a bit later, year and a half, but somewhere around the time. So let's talk about the, the planning of this, because it it looks like it takes up a a good half a room for sure in in your home. So I'm just curious, like, obviously the idea was, okay, we're going to go a big enclosure. Did you have any idea how you were going to do it or or did you just start with the concept of a large enclosure? Um, so the very first thing I did was I looked up if I had a company custom built the base structure, what would would have cost it. And that was about 10 K, which I was like, Nope, never mm-hmm. mind. Cause that's literally without the water compartment. That was just the enclosure, the land part without any plants, without any ledges, nothing, just base structure. I was like, that's way too expensive for that price. I make the whole thing. So started first of all, designing just on paper, like what's the general shape we want the discussions of water compartment inside the enclosure or outside, which ended up being outside for the main reason of maintaining the humidity. Mm. Her previous one had the water feature inside and it does really quick up the humidity consistently. So then you need to add ventilation to reduce it again. So it just adds a lot of parts, um, way more dirt that gets dragged into it from her end. So yeah decided to just keep them separate for ease. Um, also, just not losing land space. Right. If you add the water compartment in there, it's like X amount of foot, square foot you lose. Um, once the basic design was drawn out, we realized, okay, we will need to support everything because over that size, everything is just going to sag otherwise. So got angle bars hardened quite thick ones in steel, um, all cut to size, put them together into a massive frame. Inside that frame, we started putting up the wood to just make a base structure, like just an empty box, basically. So you basically took these L-shaped sort of steel and and basically made a hollow box and then took what looked like OSB or chipboard and put that inside. It was actually OSB. Okay. And um, can, can you quickly see the dimensions as well? 
So in meters, uh, it's four meters uh, long, one meter 80 wide, two meters 10 tall for the land compartment. So that would be in foot, I think a bit under 14 foot for the length, uh, about six foot wide, seven foot tall. And then the water compartment is uh, 120 centimeters long. So one meter 20 by 90 by 90. So four foot by three foot by three foot mm -hmm. for the water, which I think comes to for the water about 260 ish, 64 gallons, about a thousand liters. Um, and then the land compartment is a bit over 4,000 gallons com converted. Right. Yeah. So lots of space. A lot of space. Um, waterproofing, honestly, just a massive amount of pond foil. The stuff you use to make ponds, like line. So that was the next uh, step after line. the after putting the wood up. Yeah, just waterproof all the wood because yeah, real plants, soil, watering everything. I literally water it with a hose currently, mm. working on a rain system, but um, currently it's water with a hose. So yeah, there is I think easily 10, 15 liters at a time of water going in when I water it. Um, so of course it needed to be waterproofed quite well. Um, so pond liner everywhere. After that, it was putting up ledges, made those with concrete. I think that was about the hardest part of the build itself um, because I wanted to make them as realistic as possible. Choice materials concrete, but then concrete is heavy. So you can't right. just put massive blocks of concrete up on the wall. Uh, so first made those out of wood, reinforce those, then put a uh, pond foil over them. So that wood was waterproofed, then metal mesh, and then built a cement layer by layer up on there. Um, that ended up working. Now, are those ledges, pins. are they screwed into the wall studs or are they just screwed into the, into the enclosure or how are you securing uh, them? They are uh, secured onto the uh, OSB panels, the vertical ones. Okay, okay. With a reinforcement on the back. Like they're strong enough to hold my weight without an issue. Because gotcha, when okay. I was working on different parts, I was basically always sitting on top of them when I had to work up in height. Yeah, yeah. Like all the lamps, the electricity, I had to work on the backside, but I can't really walk behind it anymore. So, so, oh, so when you were building it, you could walk behind? I couldn't. So I had to climb on top of the ledges to lean oh, over. Oh, I see. It. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, so yeah. does that space still exist between the back of the enclosure and the wall? Uh, you can look in between it. Like if she were to ever get out, she could perfectly get in between there. Uh, okay. But I personally don't fit in there. Like okay, there is so only small. a gap between the side and the wall. So on the side, I can still get in between because that's where like the plug for the electricity and everything is. Right, yeah. But I can't get behind it. It's okay, almost gotcha. against the wall, basically. Gotcha. Just leaving space for cable management and everything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just such a commitment when you see somebody do something like this because, I mean, I know you own your house or, you, you know, you purchased a house, so you, you, I assume that that enclosure cannot leave that room. No. Um, to give an idea, the frame for the pond is actually welded. That frame was welded inside that room because it's too big. It doesn't fit through the door. So wow. it had to be welded in the room. So we did as much as we could outside, of course, but then the last bits of actually putting the last bits together, that was on inside of the room because it doesn't fit through the door. Right. So yeah. So the yeah. so the so you guys actually made the tank out of angle iron as well. 
and then yeah. put so okay so you've you've waterproof you've made the shelves and then maybe i'll just i'll let i'll, I'll let you continue kind of after the the um the shelving what was the next step um i think the next step i did was uh first uh put a front latch that would keep all the dirt in and the glass would come in front of there yeah because with the size of glass it was just not doable to put it on top of the latch i would need such a massive wide piece of wood to support that weight right um so yeah put the latch in there prepped everything to measure out till where I needed sliding panels until where the pond would attach so I could close it off. Uh, but the panel, the same height as a pond on the inside of the enclosure. So basically at that point you had the whole casing of the enclosure, sides back, a ledge at the front, a bar separating that ledge and then the front connected to the pond. So the whole front was closed minus the glass. Right. It still needed all the glass, of course, to really close it off. Um, once all of that was done, I could waterproof the front ledge, the panel, um, put all the drainage in, like the hydro valves, cover yeah. the whole bottom with a good layer of those. Oh my, you must but, have to buy so many. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I still have videos on my phone, um, both for those and the substrate. I basically went to the store got a whole like pallet because they did an action. If you bought like two bags, you got one for free. So I went in there like, I need 36. They're like, that's a whole pallet. I'm like, great. I'll get the whole pallet in. Yeah. Um, needed like two trips because my car couldn't carry as much weight in one trip. Oh, in Belgium, we don't do pickup trucks really. Our roads are really not big enough to do big pickup trucks. So I have a decent sized car, um, but it just couldn't get as much weight in. Um, so there was several trips back and forth. Also, this enclosure is on the first floor of my house. So we had to carry them all up. So when you say first floor, do you mean you go upstairs to get to it? Yeah. Wow. A lot of so people. Were really, you concerned uh, about the weight at all? Uh, I bought this house as a rough construction. So I had all the paperwork of the calculations that had been done for the weight everything can carry. Like I can slightly tilt up my screen because my house is still not finished. These are massive concrete slabs. So are you in a basement are... right now or are you on a main floor? Like outside is this the This is ground. my ground floor, like the living room floor. Okay. Don't so have a basement, I do have an attic. Okay. Okay. I got you. So basically for those who are just listening, the, the ceiling above your head is just like slabs of concrete. Yeah. And those are like one foot. So 30 centimeters. Wow. They have three layers of um, metal grid reinforcements and metal fiber in there. I think it was calculated that I, it could carry about a ton a square meter. So for every three square foot i think it is more or less it can carry one ton and okay. the calculations so you're, you're fine. yeah the the enclosure i think the whole thing together with the soil watered down everything would be anywhere between four to five tons separated over nearly 10 square meters which yeah. can carry 10 tons so half the weight of what it can carry plus it's built uh, against support walls Mm -hmm. where it's also a bit stronger it can carry i think one and a half times the weight so did definitely do the calculations prior to uh <laughs> yeah. starting the build because 
it was definitely something I thought about before starting. But yeah, once I did the calculations and I realized how much it could carry. But a lot of people that see this are from America and they build very differently than here. Like I always love my house has been built for World War Three, really. Yeah. Um, I've never seen also- like co- a thick concrete floor like that for a... Uh- because what we would call, I'm in Canada, but I mean, even even here, we, we would build everything's out of wood. And it's just, uh, you know, just floor joists with made out of two by fours and then subfloor on top. And I would think like, yeah, that that's not going to hold, it, it holds enough, you know, furniture and all that, but it's not going to yeah. hold a ton of, a ton of weight. No, no, no. Like here, like once you're inside of my house, um, I actually don't have connection with my phone because of all the amount of concrete, concrete. and yeah. metal reinforcements. I need to go to my attic to be able to call people. Oh, wow. So it has its advantages for building crazy projects like this. Um, Disadvantage for general other stuff, I would say. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, um, the hydro uh, balls, that was quite a lot because I wanted to fill at least, I'd say, two to three inch of them to have a decent amount of drainage. Uh, Then got the netting to separate it glued in the netting because I know her it's a false she'll get eventually under it if you don't like fixate it yeah um then topped it off with the substrate which was 36 bags of just topsoil mixed with another thing I added about six or seven bags of like the play sand um moss bark pieces leaf litter like you know the whole general bioactive mix. Yeah, yeah. The mixing itself happened inside the enclosure because no way I was going to do all of that in tubs. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so you're standing in the enclosure mixing yeah. it. Yeah. And basically just like throw it all in together, like throw a bag of sand in, a few of the topsoil, a bit of the moss, a bit more soil, and then just like a few mates like come over, have fun, make get get dirty, throw around some dirt. Yeah. <laughs> Um, once all of that was in, then the, for me, fun bit began of putting all the wood in, finding the branches was quite a challenge to, to find just decent size, big enough that could support her weight, uh, screaming all together. So they would not just topple over when she's being clumsy on them because mm-hmm. she definitely is. Um, and then deciding where all the lamps would come. Wanted two on height, so there is two heat lamps on shining on ledges, and then there is two heat lamps shining like lower on the floor of the enclosure. Um, everything is heated with uh, halogen heat lamps, mostly because they just create a decent spot of yeah. heat without heating too much of the environment, because the whole room is heated to a general 24, 25 Celsius. Okay. It, it holds my other, most of my other snakes too. I have a few here, but the rest are upstairs. So yeah, generally the room itself is already heated to a minimum temperature that provides the cold side, so to speak. And yeah. anything besides those four spots are cold spots. Yeah. Or well, yeah. cold side. Um, which honestly, she half of the time just sits in the water, which is, I would say the coldest of it all. Um, she'll really vary between being in the water where it's a bit fresher and chilling under heat lamps. So, okay. Now, can you quickly explain to everybody how 
you've strung the heat lamps in there because I'm sure people are thinking, okay, it's a seven foot tall enclosure, basically just a room. Obviously, they're not like on top of the screen, just shining down seven feet yeah. because you're gonna you're gonna lose all that heat. So, so how have you accomplished that? Yeah. So of course, halogens they don't shine seven foot down. You wouldn't yeah. get any heat that far down. So the bulbs themselves are mounted inside special caps basically they are made so that they reflect all the heat down so the outside of the cap actually stays really quite relatively cold so we don't it's like the outside of the test. dome basically yeah so the dome itself actually stays extremely cold for what it is um we've done the test by literally putting things over it and then measuring the temperature that it would reach with something covering it completely and it didn't even get hot enough to cover the cold side, basically. Okay, so that's that's good news. Yeah. So I've had people that worry, like, isn't she going to get burned? Like, it's dangerous. Of course, on the bottom of the, the dome, there is something covering, like, a grid. So she can't reach the bulb itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've seen her lay on top of the domes. With no issues. And she has never gotten a burn, never gotten an issue. I've always checked it, especially in the first few weeks she was in there. She would quite often lay on top of them because it's a falsy. They like to be up in height and it's the highest spot in there. Mm -hmm. So she will just chill on top of the dome instead of just on a ledge, as falsies are. Yeah. Um, and yeah, of course, at those moments, I would leave her. And then as soon as I saw her climb down, I'd be like, come here, you let's check. And yeah, she never no had sense. anything. Always felt she never really felt hot on the spot. So so are, um, how are you stringing them down? Like I, I've seen, I know there's a couple, looks like there's some that are a little bit higher, some that are kind of a, a yeah. little bit lower. They're just sort of on a cord. Can they swing freely or have you tried to secure them in a way? Uh, they're fully secured. Um, as I know her and I said earlier, one of the things I back in the day underestimated was their strength. Right. I knew that if I just hung them from the cable, she would probably just separate the cable and lamp at some point, And then it's a massive risk with free wires right so what i did is um you probably have them too in america or canada um you have the things that they use just in the house when they're building to hold down tubes into a wall it's like this anchor you put in a wall and then it's two parts that go around the tube and then okay. you screw them down yes yeah 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 that's what i actually used i just bought the very big versions of them that fitted around the top of the dome and they clamp around there, and then those are anchored into the wall gotcha. at an angle, so that they're basically just shining down on the spot without her being able to move them. Um, the ones on the lower part, one of them, for example, is put into the wood. So one of the branches, the big branches, it's fixated at the back side of the wood, so you can't see it, but yeah, it is anchored there. Gotcha. Okay, and then that makes the cables sense. are like lined along the wood, all attached, very fixed on the wood. So she can't just like pull them out. I can't get uh, under them and, and start yeah, yeah. it off. Yeah. But they're like nicely tucked away on the back of the woods. So you can't actually visually see them. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So you've done, you got the soil in there, you got the heat in there. Uh, I, I, as you said, it's the fun part now. So I'm sure you're starting to plant at this point. Um, I had most plants in my house for like already the last year for a few reasons one of them being usually if you want to put plants in an enclosure 
the normal steps would be you get a plant, you fully wash it, you clean all the dirt off the roots, so you're sure you don't put any pests in the enclosure. Now, this really wasn't an option. I had a few plants that were like, I'd say five or six foot tall when they went in, being in pots, like big pots, Huge a pots. lot of soil. I didn't have anything I could rinse them under. They were just too tall. Couldn't just take them to a sink and rinse them. Right. Um, so I would just bought them very early on and then had them grow indoors, made sure that they were pest free by the time they went in the enclosure. So gotcha. I could just take them out with all the dirt on there, drop them in, slash shocking to the plants. And yeah, it's a bit easier for me. And what kind of plants uh, were they? Uh, a tree fern. That is, I think, one of the bigger ones that is just, that one I guess was easier to move because you just can lift up the whole stump, just carry it around. Yeah, yeah. Downside, it has giant fucking leaves. <laughs> so I needed someone to come and help me hold all the leaves down while walking upstairs because, yeah, my hallway wasn't that wide. Yeah. Um, and then a paradise bird plant. Okay, yeah. They grow very, very big and, yeah, it it also just really wasn't practical. I think it were like four or five different ones in one pot. So it was a very big, wide plant and, sure. yeah, needed two people just to carry it, let alone to clean them. Um, besides that, I had a zarconia, uh, often called CZ plant. Um, also a very big one. I've had that for the last two years, just in my living room growing in the south window in full sun. So that one was really big. It has a lot of different branches with a lot of different leaves. So probably if I tried to wash that off, it would have broken off most of the leaves. Yeah. So yeah. And I are they doing okay? Are they, are, they, are they doing okay in the enclosure? Um, most are. I would say the only one that had a really hard time recently was the Paradise Bird Plant. It's currently standing behind the computer in my living room. <laughs> um, it had a pest on there, stupid okay. little insects. Yes, yeah, so um, those are the, a pain. Yeah, and to treat it, um, I took it uh, completely out because I tried any method that is nothing chemical and nothing seemed to work because the pest, the specific pest in question, don't know what you're calling in uh, English. They're the little lice that get a shield over them. Yeah, like scale, we call them like scale bugs or scaly. Like, yeah, yeah I, th I think scaly bugs. Yeah, so they don't even really look like bugs. And then you can't No, they just look like look. little bumps. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So at first I didn't realize. And of course, by the time I realized, it was quite infestation on them. So to prevent them getting on my other plants in there, because the rest wasn't infested, um, I took it out, tried first non chemical treatment, but those little buggers just handle everything apparently. Alcohol was too damaging for the plant itself. So currently treating it, um, it's growing new leaves. So it's pulling through, uh, once it's healthier, it's probably just going to be moved back in. Yeah. Cause it was really doing well there. It just, yeah. If you have a lot of real plants, pests is one thing that everyone has at some point dealt with. Oh yeah. And that one specifically I've had trouble with as well. And a lot of times I just go heavy prune and then, you know, help, help the plant come back to life because it's, it's yeah. like really tough to get, to kill them. Yeah. 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 Um, it's basically what I had to do. Like the worst infected leaves have been pruned off. Um, got a product that does kill them, but it's very chemical. So 
Yeah, yeah, you can't, can't use it. Yeah, so definitely had to take it out anyways. And, and they do kill the plant. Like the, those little things, like just suck the energy out of a plant. Oh, yeah. You'll see like uh, the sprout come up or like a, a shoot, a new shoot happen, and then suddenly the shoot will die, and then you're like, yeah, "What the hell's exactly. going on here?" And then you realize, "Oh, these things are draining this plant." I just want to take a short break from today's episode to thank each and every one of you for tuning in today. If you would like to show more support for the podcast, you can do that by checking out the show's sponsor, Custom Reptile Habitats. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you do make a purchase through that link, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. The other way you can show support to the podcast is through the Patreon account. For as little as 75 cents per episode, you will automatically be added to the Discord server so you can communicate and chat with other like-minded keepers. If you do bump yourself up to the $5 a month tier, you'll have early access to the episodes and the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. Again, I am so grateful for each and every one of you. This podcast is a lot of work and costs me a lot of money each month to run, and any support coming from your end is greatly appreciated. Back to the episode. So that was the only one. Like, um, I think a few small plants that she just squashed really with her yeah. big butt. <laughs> um, she she always climbs over every single plant. Like the ZZ plant used to have like very, very vertical branches. And by now they all like slope down against the floor. And they're not dead. They're still healthy as can be. It's She's just, just she redecorated. Always yeah, she always lays on top of them. And I've literally seen her like curled up in the center on top of the plant. So she's just like squishing them all down. Yeah. So the plant has just given up and it's like, fine, I'll grow like this now. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I had some very colorful plants, but I knew they were quite easy to break. So I know at some point she'll just break them. Um, but honestly, besides those, most do quite well. Um, some spots have a lot of light. I have four plant growth lights in each corner. So they all shine towards the center. So some spots get a lot of light, others less due to bigger plants in front of them. Right. And it's a bit of being selective. If you keep a lot of plants, you know, which ones do well in shade, which ones do well in full sun, and you select them a bit based on that. And of course it's plants. They'll find their own way. Yes, if they yeah. are not happy, they'll just start growing the other way and make sure they are happy. So that's the fun about plants. Yeah. The biggest thing with plants is just being patient and just letting them do their thing and then, you know, providing them the light and the water and then you're good. Did you do anything? So you, you were talking about the putting the clay balls in for drainage. Did you do anything to the enclosure to allow you to drain the drainage layer or are you not worried about any water buildup in there? Uh, I did not for the simple fact that in none of my enclosures, I never had an issue with it, really. I've known friends that have done it before, never really had an issue or never had to do it. I think if you are a bit smart about how you water, it shouldn't be an issue. Um, yeah. Some some plants require more water and I'll water them heavier, but then I'll water the other side less because I know the water will seep through. It yeah. will like stabilize on the bottom because, well, the floor is level. And it will just start draining up from there again. But yeah, you, I do add like 10 to 15 liters easily when I water. But of course, I don't water every day either. Yes, yeah. Like the tree fern requires water on a daily in the top of it. Every single day, I'll just take a bottle, fill it up with a liter of water, dump it in the top, but then not water the rest. Yes, yeah, that makes so, sense. 
yeah, bromeliads, if I see that the tops get empty, I just fill those up separate, but I won't go watering the whole enclosure just for those three plants. Yes. I'll wait until the top layer starts drying up and then everything's get watered, which is, I'd say about twice a week. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, okay, so you, that's basically the enclosure. As far as the glass goes, that must have not been a cheap part, is putting the glass front on. No, um, that is actually the part that put the project on hold the longest. Um, so the project took two years, but the actual build time was about half a year um, for nearly a year and a half in total, a bit, a bit of spacing here and there. But in total, a year and a half, I didn't work on it because I was lacking the budget to buy all the glass, which was cheaper if I bought it all at once, but it was, I think, altogether just the three sliding panels from the front were a bit over 700. Right. Then the little panel on top, that was fairly cheap. It was like 50 bucks. But then the water for the, the glass for the aquarium, I think was another 300. And yeah. I also have a house to pay off. The of electricity course, yeah. bill with all the other enclosures is also there. Now I have solar panels, but back then I didn't. So <laughs> the bill of electricity was also quite uh, expensive. And so, yeah, um, all the glass together, I would say, was easily 1K, a bit more probably, um, which all in all together isn't too bad. But yeah, if you have to just put it down suddenly and you have all your other costs going on, it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and can you tell us about those sliding panes? So you have the glass. Are they in tracks or how, how, how do they function? So they're actually, normally they're, to be used as indoor walls for in houses, like for example, in a bathroom. Okay. Um, or like a fancy separation in an office. That's technically what they're used for. But as my enclosure is two meters 10 tall, that's about the height of the door. <clears throat> it was way easier to just buy something that was meant to be used as a wall or like a sliding glass wall than customized panels for an enclosure. Sure. Because these came with the tracks, with everything to put on, with wheels in it, meant for the length, the weight, the size, everything. So, yeah, I put something down to make sure that the bottom, that the rail came on, was nice and flat. Fixated the bottom and the top rail. Had some friends come over because the panels are, yeah, about two meters on one, I think, 110. Because they do have a bit of an overlap. Right, yeah. So, yeah. So they're heavy. You, yeah, and you can't just put them like flat while lifting them because due to their size, it would just shatter. So you can only like lift them sideways. And yeah, it's heavy, it's big. They're like reinforced glass. Like I'm pretty sure if I would have dropped it with a corner on my tile, my tile would have broken, not the glass. Wow. It's yeah. Um, they actually, when loading it off, dropped it outside on the street with a corner. And there was a tiny chip in the glass, but nothing damaging to the glass itself, like nothing that was going to risk it breaking. But there actually was a dent in the fucking concrete on the street. Wow, that's so, yeah, crazy. That, yeah, so it was, when they said it was hardened glass, yeah, it was really, really hard glass. That's a fact. So I was not really scared of it breaking just by hitting something or being a bit clumsy with it and moving. But they did tell me if you were to move it and hold it flat, it's it will take about 0.5 seconds to shatter. 
So it's yeah, it's just so heavy that basically it can't support its own weight, like yeah. holding it lengthwise, it just crack in half. And it's probably tempered, so it would just create a smash yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So they were like, it's very strong. You can like hit it on the sides, it's not a risk because to put the profiles on, it it really felt so nasty to do because the profiles with the wheels, you had to put them on, but it's really tight. And you had to take a hammer and really just smack on it oh. to get the profiles on. But it felt so wrong to do that on a glass panel. And I was like, you know, like, carefully, carefully. And my boyfriend just was like, give this to me. Bam! And I'm like, ah, don't yeah. break him. But yeah, no, there. Yeah, it basically was what you had to do. But it just felt so wrong to do. Oh, and it's like, it's such a it's such an important part of the enclosure, right? You're like, it's, it's kind of what finishes it off. And even just lining up the bottom track and the top track, I've done that before. And that, that puts a lot of pressure on you because you're like, it's got to be exact. Like you need a perfectly yeah. vertical line between the bottom and the top. And if it's not, like the glass can't sit on a on a slight angle. You know, if it's like two degrees off, it's just not going to ride those tracks. No, so how, no, no. how did you make sure, did you use like a laser or? So for my job, my regular day job, um, it is... Uh, related to construction. So a lot of my own clients work in construction, my own company produces material for construction. Um, so I do have my connections. So I went to some of my own personal clients, asked them for uh, the lasers that like, put yes. like, if you put it on one point, it will tell you the exact same point above you. Yeah, yeah. Just use those to line everything up. Um, made sure that it was all like level and, because yeah, class that's out of, uh, that's not level is also uh, quite an issue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then once those were in, we got little profiles that actually fit over the rails, the length of the opening between the glass and the side. Because she would definitely be able to just lay against the side and push a panel to the side. Right. So we needed to add profiles between the glass panels and the sides so she couldn't move them. That's basically the lock of the enclosure. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So, okay. So that's basically the terrestrial side of the enclosure. You have the branches, the plants, everything, everything's planted. And now you've, you know, you've constructed this 260, whatever it was, gallon, basically aquarium that comes off it sort of like an L shape. So if anyone's listening, just picturing like you have this four meter by six, four meter by essentially two meter deep enclosure that's kind of at the back of a room and then you have a, 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 on the left hand side we'll say jutting out of a, an aquarium attached to the so yeah. ha, so tell me about that because that, that as you had mentioned earlier that the idea was to pull the water feature out of the enclosure so it's not taking up floor space but i'm curious how does the snake move in between those how is that thing functioning okay so in general how she can access it uh so the filtration and everything is inside of the land compartment it's actually behind the water compartment. If you would like look, if you would be able to look through the wall, you would be able to see it standing behind there. Okay. And then the side panel connected to her enclosure, there is different holes, two holes to connect the pump. So the in and outtake, those are just the size of the tubing. And then next to that is about, I would say at 15 centimeters, which is a seven foot hole. Inch hole, say, yeah. Uh, inch hole, yeah. Foot that would be massive. <laughs> a seven uh, inch hole that she easily fits through, and so the hole is made on both the panel on the inside of the land compartment and on the side panel of the water. And those two holes on the inside are connected with like this rubber mat that we glued in. 
Um, so it's so she can't get out of it. She, she can just like go from one to the other very easily. She knows the entrance very well. Yeah. A lot of people are like, yeah, does she like, can she find it easily? Or like when she's swimming in the water, she's they're like, oh, but she's looking for the exit. I'm like, oh, she knows the exit very well, believe yes. me. Yes, yeah. Anytime we come into the room and she we are doing anything in the snake room, she always hopes there is food coming. So if she's in the water, she'll instantly be like hanging with her head out of the hole into the land compartment, like looking directly around the corner at the glass being like, so uh, you, got, you got a rat there for me? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, she, she definitely knows the exit um, without an issue. Did you help um, her find that hole initially or did you put her in and then just let her explore? Uh, initially, we just put her in, let her explore. Um, the very first time I did bait her towards there with a the rat. She didn't go in. She was faster than me. She grabbed the rat and retracted. Oh. <laughs> but then after she ate, I was like, I give up. I'll go up. Because um, I was working on something on the attic. It's like my workspace. Uh, and when I came back down, she was just swimming around. So I'm like, okay, she found it. All yeah. good. Um, yeah, she probably already knew it was there too if she went there right after eating. Yeah, most likely. Um, meanwhile, I've installed a camera in the enclosure that's motion detected. So now I can just like, I get a notification anytime she's moving around. So I could just see that very often, like in the middle of the night, even she'll start moving around, go for a swim, go back out. That's cool. She'll go for a swim sometimes for like, five minutes sometimes she'll be in the water for days on end but so yeah they are connected they are completely separate compartments they're just connected by a hole two holes that have a little mat in there so she can't just get like get in the slit in between both compartments okay that makes sense and then so the top of the aquarium has a, a lid obviously so she can't get out is that clear as well or is that just uh, i forget what you have up there uh, it is uh, wood, but it is like completely, it's, I don't know what you call it in English here in Belgium. It's this type of wood that is being treated to be able to be used outdoors. Oh, that like, pressure so even treated. if it rains. Yeah. Um, and it has like this layer that is completely like Waterproof. epoxy, basically. Okay. Um, so that's what, what I've used. And I just made a cut in the center, put point on it where I can open it. But a gotcha. few rails so it doesn't fall through when I try and close it. And that's just how I can open and close it very easily. Uh, do water maintenance, um, check the parameters, feed the fish, because there is a few fish living in there and a lot of shrimp to uh, help with the cleanup. Um, and yeah, besides that, also if she's in the water, I want to feed her. I really don't bother taking her out of the water because she'll just drag all the food back in. Oh, okay. So, Quite a mess when she does that, but that, that's <laughs> one of the parts of it. Um, not as bad as when she poops in the water, really. Uh, that is the real mess. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, when we did build the water, the pond part, the first time, we built it out of glass. And so the bottom panel and the side panel were some kind of plastic, like not plexiglass, uh, it were like black panels. Okay. Quite fake. Um, think nearly an, a bit under an inch. Um, I thought they were able to support the weight, well, pressure of the water. So those were uh, the bottom and the side connecting to her enclosure because the bottom had a hole to drain out the water easily. 
if necessary. And then the side had the holes for the water, the pump and her connection. And I didn't feel like drilling those holes through glass, especially because I was using double layered uh, glass, like hardened, reinforced with like yeah. a layer of protection in between. You so, can't drill it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and what ended up happening, so one of the glass panels cracked, um, the horror, any person that has an aquarium in a house can or will know the yeah. fear of having it crack and knowing it's thousand liters, the sheer volume, if that actually would have started leaking, that would have ruined my whole room because there is a lot of en other enclosures, like I'd say three or four enclosures on the floor. Tanuki's her her enclosure has been proof from the inside, like waterproof, but not from the outside. Yeah, yeah. So it would have ruined a lot. Uh, also, just the side of my walls, the door. That yeah, it would not have been good. So which panel was, cracked? Uh, the front one, like the okay. biggest one in the front. You can actually see through. So. I was here working from home. I was doing calls and I was on a call with a client when I suddenly heard this loud, it, it sounded like someone closed the door. Like, you know, when there is a lot of wind and it like slams closed. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell? I'm alone in, in the house. There shouldn't be that kind of noise. So I finish the call and I go check. And as soon as I walk into the room, I see the cracked panels. I'm like, oh, damn. So instantly started draining out most of the water until it was like just at the intake of the pump. So of course the pump couldn't be running dry. There were still fish and shrimp in there. I couldn't like just pull out the pump either. Close off the hole to the aquarium so Tanuki couldn't access it anymore. Because if she went in at the water level, she couldn't get out. Right. Um, the distance to the hole was way too much. Um, so I instantly put like a big tub of water inside her enclosure. So she had access to fresh water. Um, and yeah, then had fun fishing out all the fish, the shrimps, everything. I have very funny photos of that, of me standing in like my slip and a t-shirt with a little net on my bare feet in the tank fishing for stuff. Standing in the tank. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I like leaning over. It's too tall, so oh, yeah, it's I easier see, yeah. standing in. Um, so yeah, it can support my weight. So I just went in. Um, and, but and, the and so it, when it when it cracked, did any water start to dribble out a little bit, or was it all holding no. it? And oh, that's crazy. Um, very lucky uh, that I got like the double layered with like the basically the foil that is in between the layers kept it from cracking further. Gotcha. Okay. And so only one of the two panels. So it's like double layered. So you have two layers of glass on one panel and only one of those two layers cracked. Yeah. So it's like a windshield course, in a car. Yeah. It wasn't going to take long before the second was going to crack under that pressure. Um, of course. So yeah, instantly had to drain that. Um, what ended up happening was the panel, It's the black panels are called PE panels. That P, uh, PE panel on the side under pressure was slowly and slowly bending slightly bit outwards. Yeah edges were pushing inwards because of that and so those were putting increased pressure on the glass panels consistently yeah. bit more by more and yeah at some point it just ended up breaking um took all of those out ordered plexiglass panels um the biggest panels i think are at two uh at one inch one fifth of an inch so three centimeters so they're Thick. big. Um, 
for people that wonder if they want to do a similar project, I would definitely recommend don't start with glass. Instantly go for plexiglass. It mm-hmm. will save you the worry of it breaking. Um, on the other hand, just the glass, uh, the plexiglass, and the glue because it's a very special glue to glue that size. Well, that thickness of plexi, you can't just use silicon. Yeah. Um, that was two point two k. Oh, and you're talking just- euros. Yeah, in euros, 2,200 euros for the glue and the plexiglass alone. So it is very expensive to get the plexiglass. It, it was about one fourth of the whole price of the project, just the panels and the glue. But at the same time, if I had known from the beginning, I would have instantly done it with the plexi. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, with the plexi, I didn't add a drainage in the bottom. So now there is substrate on the bottom, which it wasn't before because, yeah, there was a drain. It would have just sucked out all the substrate. Um, Now I just drain it from the top, like with the siphon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Got quite a strong pump, so it can empty it quite fast. I'd say if I really want it completely empty, I could do it in about 20 minutes. Okay. So that's not bad. Yeah. Now, what what about filtration? What are you using? And, And do you actually, I mean, you have some fish in there and some shrimp in there, but do you rely on the filtration for the snake herself or no? I mean, if she defecates or urinates in there, you have to change the water. Um, half and half. So as long as she doesn't defecate for general maintenance, um, I definitely rely on both the pump and the plants because all of the plants in the water are also alive plants. Right. And they do a massive amount of work on removing nitrates from the water, especially when she has defecated in there. They will actually... Like, let's say she defecates during the day. I'm out all day at work, as is my boyfriend. Neither of us is here to instantly clean it. It's the plants and the filter that will make it so that the water parameters don't get messed up so badly that all the fish and the shrimp will die. Right, yes. There isn't that many in there, but the few that are there, still, I want them to live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like, they've been picked specifically for their size and their speed. Because I don't want tanuki to eat them. It's quite hard to find in general aquarium fish that don't contain tiaminase. The yeah. it's quite risky for snakes if they eat it in if they start eating it in large amounts. And once you were to be able to catch a fish, I know that back in the day I used to breed like small guppies for her because those are safe to eat. And once she got one, by the end of the day they would all be gone. Yeah. So yeah, if once she gets a taste, she keeps going. So now it's like only species that are fast enough or shrimp, which she doesn't mind. She doesn't care about those. But the filter itself is a canister filter, but it's meant for like it's a heavy duty one meant for ponds, outdoor okay. ponds. Um, so it's not like the one you would see for like an indoor aquarium. It's like the one that you would have for a two thousand liter pond outside. Gotcha. Um. So yeah, this one moves about 2,000 liter every 30 minutes. So it wow. can move about double the amount in half an hour. Um, it has four-step filtration, UV light in there to really treat everything going through it. Um, besides that, there is the plants, of course, the fish and the shrimp. Like anytime she does defecate in the water, they are quite excited about it, I must say. Mm-hmm. They actually enjoy eating from it. I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, anytime we do see that she has defecated, we try to grab the hose, suck out the worst of like the clumps, really, 
Also because at some point it will just clog the filter. Yeah. Um, so you get out the worst of it. There is like a little mesh over the filter to keep the worst out, especially the fur. That's about the worst. Like oh, if they yeah, defecate, yeah. the fur comes with it. Um, like already, if she swims around after defecating, she will kick it everywhere. And you come into the room and you just see a furnado in the aquarium. Because yes, there is like yeah. fur floating everywhere in it. And you're just like, okay, we can get the worst clumps out, but then we'll have to wait until it all settles. And usually it will settle against the screen at the filter. Then we get the screen off, clean that out, put it back. But yeah, recently had just done the whole routine after she defecated in the water, drained out like 50% of the water, refilled that with fresh. That's about what we do on an average when she defecates. After a while, you learn that that's the amount you need to take out to have the the parameters back to normal. Yeah. So a 50% water change on this volume does the trick. And then the day after you come in the room and she has defecated again. (sighs) That's a policy for you. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, when you do build this size enclosure and you give them that size of water feature, no, you'll be consuming a lot of water. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And what what about cleaning otherwise? You know, obviously you can't just walk through what it's like when she defecates in the pond, but you know, as you said earlier, they're sort of well known for their the potency and the you know, they have are, are quite waste machines. So how how do you find cleaning this entire enclosure? Is it okay? Uh honestly, very little work. Um there is anything from springtails to isopods, which are the common things, millipedes, worms. Uh, super worms, the whole shenanigans, some types of beetles, um, a lot of different species of the different animals I listed. So different types of isopod, different types of millipedes, all of those, because they all attack different things separately. All of them love when she defecates. So yeah. definitely already when I started off the enclosure, I try to have the soil in as quickly as possible so that I could throw those in so they could start getting established. Because of course, if you start off, you throw a few handfuls. Okay, it was a bit more than handfuls in this case, but still compared to the size, you're never gonna add enough to have a full ongoing colony. Yes. But yeah, you throw them in, you let them go for quite a while. And at this point, I will say that if she defecates, it takes them about half a day and most of it is gone. Okay. Which wow, is that's insanely amazing. best. Um, even back in the day on our smaller size enclosures, that just wasn't doable. The amount of substrate just didn't allow for the amount of critters. Yeah. So it was never enough to really handle her size poops. But now that she has that amount of space, there is just so many of them that when she does defecate, you just see a mess around there. And afterwards, it just disperses again. But anything in the vicinity as soon as they smell it they'll just all go to it because it's good nutrition for them yes well I, I, that's such an important point because doing bioactive for snakes can be quite a challenge due to the amount of waste that they produce even though it's not as frequent as you know maybe like a lizard or something it is just like so much that most systems can't handle it so the point is is like the reason yours can handle it is because you have such a huge enclosure with such a thick amount of substrate. And like you said, it allows you to house such a large amount of, you couldn't have that many isopods in a smaller enclosure. They were just, they wouldn't be able to sustain themselves. 
Yeah, no, like for example, most of mother snakes, like often when I post the enclosure or pictures or videos or whatever, people go like, oh, you make us look like bad keepers. I'm like, well, if I were to turn around and film my other enclosures, you know, I would look like a bad keeper. Yes. One yeah. of my snakes has this massive enclosure and my other snakes are in more regular size. Like, sure, I'm going to rebuild the two meter one for the pythons and stuff. So they'll get a nice big one. But yeah, I think every animal has an enclosure that fits for them. My mandarin red snakes are always burrowed. So they just have enclosures four foot by two foot by two foot with a massive amount of substrate because they like to burrow. Mm -hmm. So that's fit to their preference. It has branches they can climb, of course, but they'll rarely be up in the height. They'll mostly be in the uh, burrowed. Where the pythons like to climb, they're semi-arboreal. So they'll have a bunch of branches in the height and way less substrate in comparison. Yeah. But they usually always sit on one spot too. So they're not moving as much even at night compared to a falsy or if you were to go for a lot of colubrid species tend to be way more active than compared to boa and python species. Yes. So yeah, I think every animal has their best option of enclosure or I wouldn't say optimal size. Of course, if I had the option, I would love to give all my snakes this size enclosure, but sadly enough, my house isn't that big. <laughs> Well, and you have to be um, yeah realistic, right? Like, yes, it's amazing that you can provide this incredible enclosure for the falsy. Not not everybody's going to be able to do that. And obviously you can't do that for every snake you have. So you kind of have exactly. to pick and choose and try your best to make, you know, a smaller enclosure work to the best of its yeah. ability, you know. Like, it's a lot of people when I was building it were asking me like, what is going to go in there? And they were thinking it was going to be for like an anaconda, a retic, a berm, some huge type of lizard. Um, first of all, none of the different species nor the big lizards not anacondas or berms or retics are allowed anymore because right. of their size um government was like no one keeps these snakes in proper size enclosures so we just don't allow them anymore and honestly i genuinely personally think that this enclosure is too small for a retic or a berm yeah not in height not in width but in length it's still snakes my enclosure is a bit over half their length. I still want enclosures that are as at least as long as a snake is. Yeah. At least that's the minimum for me. That's what all my snakes as a minimum get is their length. And I always try to add at least half of their length to it. So if they're, let's say a meter, I'll try to give them a meter and a half. So they're not like just barely able to stretch. So yeah, if. I had a berm. The only room in my house I had that's big enough is my living room. That's 10 meters. But yeah, wouldn't convert my whole living room. That Not that insane. No. Yeah. <laughs> you got to have some limits there, but I, I totally know what you mean. I, I just I had a question that dawned on me that I wanted to jump back for the the aquarium or the water side. Do you heat it? Uh, no, mostly because the whole room itself okay. is heated so to a certain temp. It tends to keep the water at usually around 23, 24. It's a tiny bit lower than the room itself, but gotcha. because the whole room is consistently kept to a certain temp, the water tends to stay at the, around the same temp. Okay. That makes sense. Is there anything that, well, first off, is there anything with the enclosure that hasn't worked well that you've had to adjust or, or like if, if somebody wanted to do something similar to this, is there things that jump out right away? Like, okay, this was a fail. Yeah. Don't do that. 
Um, well, definitely trying the aquarium with the glass. That was yes, not yeah. this one. Um, but besides that, so again, underestimating falsies and what they managed to pull off. Um, so as I mentioned, the ledges are hollow. So quite recently, um, remember how I also said, what is the issue with big enclosures to me? Losing your snake sometimes and not being sure where they are at. Um, so she had been missing, basically. Well, I haven't seen her at all for a good three weeks, nearly a month. And that's really not her usual thing. Like, she'll be hidden a week, maybe two, but that's really been the maximum ever. <clears throat> Never been gone longer than two weeks. And so I start being like, okay, where is she at? Then I, you start thinking like, okay, you put down some food, you make some noise, move everything around a bit so she really gets woken up, or you would think. And she comes for the food, but she doesn't. And the second time she doesn't. And the third time, a week later, she doesn't. And then you really start worrying. And so, of course, uh, being an overthinker and panicking, I'm like, oh shit, maybe she's under the substrate and she got under the netting or something. And yeah. now can't get out because that would be typical for her to do. Um, or in worst case, something is really wrong with her and yeah, she's just not reacting. So it got to a point where I actively started taking substrate out of the enclosure to be able to reach the netting to see if she, if it was loose on the sides to see if she could have gotten under there. Yeah. And then suddenly while I was frantically digging out substrate, she poked her head out of the bottom of one of the ledges. So she, she had found a way, there. yeah, she had found a way to basically loosen the attachment of the first pond foil onto the second that covered the ledge. And so okay. she got that loose, got a bit of the cement that was covering the bottom loose and created a hole big enough for her to actually enter the ledge. And of course there is a heat lamp above it. So that so ledge nice is warm. on the inside. Nice and warm. It's nice and soft because it's just the pond foil, which is quite smooth. So she, she had found herself the best, coziest spot ever. That wasn't meant to be a spot. <laughs> so yeah, um, things that I would have done differently, definitely would have secured the pond foil first with screws and then covered those with glue. silicone, silicone indeed, um, to make sure she couldn't get those off. Um, as a first, that definitely. Um, secondly, Choosing plants, um, the size I put in of some plants, for example, uh, I have a Alocasia macrovisa, um, elephant ear. Hmm. I had one for quite a while and it was already a fairly big plant. It was, I would say five foot when I put it in, but the leaves are not too big. Within six months, it had grown big enough that it was actually pushing against the top screen. Right. So being a bit more conscious about big plants and how fast they might grow. Uh, it's still in there, but I did like completely pull it out, move it to a different spot under an angle. So, and doing all of that dramatized enough to drop all its big leaves. So now it's way smaller again. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to handle it, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Um, besides that, I would say um, taking things for future plans into consideration, like I'm uh, planning on adding a rain system, foreseeing a way, for example, if I could have used a way to just use water from the pond 
to just mm -hmm. drain out of there. That would have been quite nice because that one gets refreshed quite often and it's great water for the plants. Yeah. Because it's aquarium water. It's great with feeding and... And even if there is urate in, in there, it's just going to be nitrogen dump onto the soil. It's just some, some fertilizer, not a big deal. Exactly. So um, thinking ahead with those things, like now I would need to make a separate basin that holds water to then pump water out of and then pump that into the system to water everything. Whereas yeah. if you take that into account from the get-go, you can foresee something that you install a drain, just a tube that goes to the pump from the get-go. So it just keeps taking it out. And well, gravity will do its work there because well, the tub is big enough with enough water for the way to just push it down. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Because now uh, are you going to do a rain system? I know you had bought a pump. Yeah. Um, I have the pump. I have all the connections but one. So the, it was quite hard to get from the connection. So it's a pump to pump up rainwater from a well. So it's quite okay. a heavy duty pump. Um, meant to just connect a regular hose to it. Um, I have to bring that down to a very thin tube to put enough pressure on the nozzles to like create yeah, a rain. Spray, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm waiting on one connection to reduce from half an inch to quarter inch. Gotcha. Very annoying piece to find. It's been ordered like two weeks ago and it takes ages to arrive. I was hoping it was here sooner, but besides that, we have everything ready except the basin because as mentioned, I'm still thinking of maybe being able to pull the water from the pond. Um, just as I said, as I didn't foresee that from the get-go, that does make certain things a bit harder. Right. To add it now afterwards, like you'll have a tube that you can see, or I need to work with a clear tube. But then there is fish in there, there is shrimp in there. So you have to be careful about the intake that you don't just suck up your fish. animals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit of things to take into consideration. Um, the background here, we don't really have companies that make pre-made backgrounds. Right. Like I know in, in the USA, you actually, like I've, I watched Snake Discovery, they have a lot of videos on when they were building their um, zoo mm -hmm. and they got like pre-made back panels. Yeah, with, like, Universal prints. Rock. Yeah. yeah. I wish we had it, but yeah, here you either make it yourself, which on that size, I'll admit, I've done it in the past on a previous one, like completely with like spray foam, you carve it, put silicon. Yeah. It's so much work. It's so messy. Over time, it really doesn't look as great because if they move and they climb a lot against it, they will peel off all the dirt and you'll start to see the silicon through it again. Yes, yeah. Even if you pressed it in, it, it will peel out. Um, so yeah, here I used cocoa fiber, just big mats of cocoa fiber attached it against it. Over time, plants will grow on it. But right now she figured out that she can actually climb through it. So she keeps trying to climb through it, but then she pulls out pieces. So she creates holes everywhere that I regularly need to patch. Okay. So if you can use something sturdier, we definitely recommend people using something sturdier as they're lovely animals, but they are also great at breaking stuff that you really <laughs> didn't intend them to break um, or getting places. Like I had to attach the tubes of the pump in the water with strips. So I have these suction cups against the glass and they just click around the tube, but she kept always going in between the tube and the glass and clicking them out. But then it would just be spraying everywhere instead of right and creating a proper current. Right. Yeah. 
So I just ended up like attaching them to trips. And even now she sometimes manages to just pull off the suction cups completely. That's but, just their nature. Yeah, exactly. Um, the wood in the aquarium, originally it was positioned in such a way that like all the plants were like getting nice light and visible. And then she swims once and knocks them all around. Even though the pieces are massive and heavy, it's nothing to her. She just, especially in the water, she just knocks it and they just go like, Wee. Yeah. So, so the things you learn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about yeah, the screen? I, what did you guys use for, I didn't, I don't think we talked about that to cut like the top. Oh yeah. Um, that's actually just regular window screen okay. you would use for, uh, insects. Same with the frame I used to make it. So I just got them on like the biggest size I could get with what, which was two meters. So I had to make two of them to fit. The just screen. connect them to the, Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the center, I got like, an a bar, like an eye shape, like okay. the bars that are like eye shape. So it slides in from both sides. Yes. Yeah. So that one is attached on the top of the enclosure in the center so they can slide in. And then all the way around, I put like these L irons. Okay. So they're just like attached to the side of the enclosure. And then I'd say they stick out just enough for that profile to slide under it. And they're gotcha. put like every 10 centimeters, which is every four inches. Yeah. Just to make sure that she, when she's on a ledge, can't just push it up and get in between. Yeah. So it, it, they're, they're wedged in there. Yeah. And then at the front over the whole length of those profiles, I've put magnets. So those just attached by magnet because she has nothing to reach the front. So even if they're not attached as strong, she has no way of reaching that and pushing it up. Yeah. Okay. That but makes sense. All the way around, they're just secured. And if necessary, you can just slide them out. Right. Okay. That makes sense. With a bit of effort. It's yeah. not that easy to slide them out, but it's doable. And I guess it's not something you probably have to do very often. No, honestly, it would only be if like, let's say, one of the lamps of the room itself broke, which is above the enclosure, and that needs to be replaced, then you would need to slide it out, get into the enclosure to reach a lamp. Gotcha, yeah. Like generally working on anything, let's say if there is anything with the lamps in the enclosure, you need to fix anything in there, it's just like you climb in there. There is no leaning over, it's just too big, you don't reach yeah. the back. Yeah, exactly. Well. I know you had mentioned too, like you have a time lapse on your YouTube channel, which we'll include in the show notes so people can watch the whole thing build. And, and if you're watching on YouTube, maybe we'll have inc probably included some of that footage uh, throughout this conversation. And I think you were mentioning before we started recording that there is a, a tally at the end as far as how much you spent. Do you mind kind yeah. of just breaking down? Just You don't have to go through every individual thing, but just roughly how much did this endeavor cost? The total cost, um, because on the YouTube video I'd mentioned to you, before, but the repairs of the pond are not included. So the right. plexiglass, which was a massive cost. So on the file on YouTube at the end, it will say just over 6,000 euros. Um, with the plexiglass part included, it would be around 8,000, just under 8,300 euros. With now the pump, if I finish the whole watering system, let's say that that's another 250 to it. Yeah. Um, which would yeah end up being eight thousand five hundred fifty, give or take euros. That's on the not file, bad. I did. No, it's really not. Um, on the file, I actually wrote down everything. So when I say everything, I counted every box of screws I bought, every tube of silicon, and silicon people will underestimate, but that ended up being I think five or six hundred euros. Oh, easily. easily. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see that. 
people underestimate how much it costs, but um, and how little a tube actually has. You go through them so fast, especially if you work on this size. Like if you do one small enclosure, you'll be like, okay, one tube goes a decent way, but then you do this and you start putting it on the panel and you just don't get far. You're like, okay, you need like 10 tubes to do one part. So yeah. it really builds up quite fast. Um, I also did contact, um, maybe important for people if they want to do this. I contacted different companies throughout the project. For example, when using the pond foil, um, if it's safe to use with any type of animal, mm. um, with the silicon, I contacted the company that makes it here to go over them uh, with them, like which one is 100% safe when it occurs for animals. Yeah. Um, literally everything, uh, the concrete, like any products mixed in there, like for the painting of the concrete afterwards, because yeah, painted it to like get texture differences or the look of it. Um, everything has to be checked. I painted the front of the ledge that keeps the wood in, in black. That's all done with, for example, child safe paint. Yes. Yeah. That's good. <clears throat> so it's all small things that are necessary. Like very recently, someone commented on my YouTube video, like you created a very toxic environment with all the glue and the rubber. It's like, it is things that have been taken into considerations. Of course, I know you can't just smack any type of products in there. Yeah. Um, same with the pond. The first time around, I used a very specific product to seal it to make sure it didn't leak. That product is, I like. I think I had contacted about fifteen different companies before I found one that made a product that I felt safe to use, yeah. and that they felt safe to use. That they themselves were like, "I dare to guarantee you that this is safe to use with animals." Yeah, because most companies, even if they know it's probably safe, they're not willing to say that in writing because the product's not made for yeah. animals. So they, there's no need for them to risk saying it's going to work because why would yeah. they? They might as well just say no and simplify exactly. their their legal side. And I think this product had been used uh, in uh, aquarium bits of zoos before. Mm. So it was used for fish and fish tend to be quite sensitive to chemicals in water. Right. So if they felt safe saying like, yeah, for fish, it's fine. In my case, it was also going to be used in an aquarium. They're like, yeah, if it's not going to damage your fish, it's not going to damage the snake either because it's not releasing anything. It, if it released anything in the water, the fish wouldn't handle it either. Yeah. Um, but it is a very important thing if you go building, especially on this size, um, a lot of the materials you will be needing to use are not made for reptile use or for animal use in general. Um, so contacting companies near you and making sure that whatever you use is safe is your responsibility. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's the a responsibility. Point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really good. A really good point. And like you said, when you're going to that scale, you know, nothing is going to be made for keeping a snake. So you know, you're you're essentially doing construction at that point. Yeah, it, it's an incredible project. I, I think I, it's, it's no wonder that every time you post about it, people are kind of jaws on the floor because of how incredible it looks. And I think most people, especially listening to this, will be very familiar with falsies and false water cobras just in general. About how you know how active they are and how much of a um, a personality they have and you know they do require a lot and obviously making an enclosure like this is not for everybody and not everybody can afford to do something like that but it's amazing to see when someone actually just takes the plunge and goes ahead and does it it, it was a really fun project and like i said i really also love plants so 
a lot of people be like, yeah, but you will never see your snake in there. I'm like, yeah, I really don't care that much. Like, sure, yeah. she's going to panic me a bit if she goes hiding for three weeks. Yeah. Um, but all in all together, if she's happy in there and she's having a good life and she's healthy, that's what matters to me. If she feels like coming out, it's quite easy to tell if she wouldn't mind coming out because she'll literally be coming up against the glass when I'm in the room. Right. I'll open the enclosure and she's free to crawl out if she wants. If she doesn't, she stays in there. And if she comes out, I'll pick her up. And if the weather is nice, we'll go sit in the yard a bit. But yeah, it, it's not my priority. I have seven snakes and I don't handle them all that often. Yeah. It's, yeah, not my priority. If I get to see them from time to time and they're having a good life and I get to care for them and provide them that good life that's what matters and yeah if people can provide a big enclosure i definitely recommend it because the behavior you get to see to see a snake swim like that for me it's one of the most fun things to watch i can sit in front of that aquarium when she's swimming for hours and mm -hmm. just watch and yeah i definitely would recommend people to at least give them a nice size enclosure, a nice tub of water, just for them to be able to see them have more natural behavior, which I recommend with any animal, really. Uh, if you have an arboreal snake, do provide it some nice hide and branches to see it climb, not just a PVC tube. Um, if you have a snake that likes water, give it a nice big tub of water so you can actually see do more than just soak. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, the swimming thing is huge. I mean, there's a lot of snakes that are very good swimmers, and like I, it, it and it's tough to implement because of how much you know technical work there is to provide some some larger definitely. you know swimming space. But I think it would be something even if somebody wanted to do that. Uh, I mean, you see people do that in like their tub and whatnot, or you know even if you wanted to have a large basin that wasn't part of the enclosure that you just filled up once in a while and and let yeah. your snake explore. Like something like that would work. Like stupidly said, but you have like the kiddie pools. Just exactly. to put in the yard in the summer, if it's good weather, I'd fill it with a bunch of rainwater. I would refrain from tap water because it does, depending on where you live, of course. Like, for example, here it's perfectly safe, but I know in a lot of places in America, they're like quite against using the tap water for mm -hmm. these things. Um, but yeah, use some rainwater and let them have a great time. Like, even like my king snakes, like all of them, I don't like giving them just a water dish, give them like something decent size even if it does take up a bit of space of the enclosure in that moment you'll just either have to go a tiny bit bigger on the land part or start implementing ledges but in some height it increases the floor space tremendously in such an easy way and yeah suddenly people that put in ledges will be like oh yeah suddenly my snake will be up in the height yeah because yeah. you provide it if you Absolutely. provide them the things like uh, a podcast you did recently where I really loved where you talked about what is natural mm, for an yes. enclosure. Yeah. It was really interesting because indeed, like you will find snakes in a barn very often, like red snakes are known to go consistently steal chicken eggs in a chicken coop. Yes, And they'll yeah. just stay there because they know they find food there. So natural, like if you can provide ledges, does it have to look natural? Of course, it's fun to make stuff like my enclosure look natural, but at the end of the day, you're not going to go into the jungle and find a bunch of rocks sticking out while there is branches in the center of them like that. Yes. It's partially just for practicality. I want something sturdy for her to be on height. And I want it to look a bit natural to fall more into the enclosure. But you can perfectly just take a wooden plank, 
put it in, secure it, and they have a nice latch. So yeah. yeah, I think just getting materials, whether it's natural or not natural, but just to create more opportunity for the animals to be themselves, do more than just lay in a box and not move and wait for you to feed them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the function that you're providing and, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter, really matter how you do it as long as you can give them that opportunity to have choice and, and exhibit different behaviors. Yeah, it's like I like bioactive enclosures because one, it makes it easy on maintenance, really, honestly, like everyone that has a lot of bioactive will admit that you don't have to sterilize everything. You don't have to scrub everything. Mm -hmm. You'll still need to clean <clears throat> just less intense, less sterile, sterile yeah. everything. Yeah. But at the same time, there is no difference to me whether you keep them in bioactive substrate or you keep them on Aspen or on anything else that you then clean every week. You just do provide them not with a tiny layer, but give them a bit of substrate so that they can burrow, give them a bit of branches. If it is arboreal, not just one single PVC tube and they just have to hang on the same spot all day, yes, give them yeah. a bit of high differences. Can still do it with PVC, really, but give them a few, give them choice to move around a bit, make a box to hide up in the height instead of on the floor. Yeah, yeah really I would say that, like, up. you know, how many places in the enclosure can the animal go is a good question you can ask yourself. And if you, yeah. and, and sometimes we make enclosures that look aesthetically cool with like one branch or like you say, like one PVC thing, it's like that snake can go one place or, or two, the floor and that stick. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's just not enough. Yeah, it's, a thing where people be like, oh, they need a warm height, they need a cold height, and they will provide two spots and a bit of like maybe plants or foliage and we're settled. But there is so much more that you can provide to them to see natural behavior, to see them crawl around. Like people tend to say like false water cobras don't climb well. Well, give them a bunch of branches and height and you'll see how well they actually can climb. Yeah. She's more often up in heights than uh, she's up on the floor. She ended up finding a hiding spot up on a ledge, inside the ledge, off right. the floor. Goes to show how much they actually like being off the ground. Yet, sure, I've, I've, <laughs> I have the camera with the motion detection. I have a whole lot of videos with her just tumbling off stuff. <laughs> um, then I get a notification and I look and I don't see her. And then I scroll back a bit and I just see her go like, wee. <laughs> yeah. So... Sure, they also fall, but that's any snake, really. Yes. Even the best climbers, they'll fall off stuff from time to time. Um, but yeah, just in general, I think people that want to try something similar, do they have to go as big as this? <clears throat> of course not. Um, <clears throat> I went this size just because I could, really. That's the only answer I can give to that one. Yeah. Um, not because I needed to, not because someone told me to, just because I could. I had the space. It was a room I didn't use. I decided I'll make the this enclosure till the ceiling, the whole width of the room, which was a four meters. And I'll go in depth all the way till I reach the window. And then the pond will be in height till the window. So that makes then the L. Right. Yeah. So that's basically how the dimensions have been decided. It's not like I said from the get go, this has to be the size. It was just like, you worked we designed the shape, we measured the room afterwards, and then it's like, okay, so this will be the dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So 
for me, it was more based on the size of the room. If someone has a room that's, let's say, six feet and they're like, I want to do something similar, go ahead. It's not bit like the, the whole thing is not based on how big can you go. It's how much can you provide for the animal you have is more yes. what I think in this type of mindset. I think that's really, really well said. And I think that that's, a, I think, a perfect place to wrap up as well. I think I, I just loved chatting with you. I, th- I think this project is, I mean, like I said, it creates a lot of buzz when you share it. And it's just, it's been fascinating talking to you, just the process of getting through this. And like, I think, like you said, it's not about the size, it's about the, the what you're willing to provide. And people can take the lessons that you have uh, talked about in this episode and shrink it or grow it depending on what they want to do with it. You know, you can just, these can be scaled at any size. So Enki, thank you so much for being here. And also I'll, I'll thank you on behalf of all the American listeners who uh, are probably appreciating your dimension conversions. Like you're very fast at that. So uh, I don't know if that's from your, you know, your job, but yeah, I know people appreciate that as well. Is there anything you wanted to say as we wrap up that we didn't cover today? Um, I would, uh, first of all, say no problem on the conversion. It's mostly from um, getting asked questions throughout the build of people asking okay. me questions and having to convert them every time. And um, after a while, you start getting used to what is a foot to centimeters or an inch to centimeters. Once yeah. you know those two, it's not that hard, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, depending on how big the size is, but generally speaking, uh, not that much of a problem. Um, and no, I think in general, we covered most of the things. Um, yeah, I think the water system will still be added once that's added. I will most likely put an update on my YouTube channel once that will show the aquarium with the acrylic part in it. I'll show a bit better on video where the connection is between the two mm-hmm. and then the rain system itself. But yeah, besides that, I would just uh, tell people, enjoy keeping your reptiles, make sure that instead of going for qual- uh, quantity you go for quality yes um always prefer hearing people that keep a bit less animals in nice setups than those that go for uh, a whole lot all shoved in racks as adults just to be able to say they have many yeah um yeah, completely agree uh, can you let everybody know the instagram and the youtube page just so they can come find it for sure. Uh, apparently, I always thought that on YouTube was just at Yoshinoa, but apparently you need to add a one at the end. It's at Yoshinoa one, and then you'll actually find my channel or should find the channel where the enclosure is on. And I'll put that in the show um, notes for folks as well. In Insta- on Instagram, it's Tanuki the Falsy. Um, I will admit I'm not really all that active on uh, social media, but from time to time, I drop some posts there. Um, YouTube, mostly when there is big changes to the enclosure. So the time-lapse was the last one. And then somewhere in the next, hopefully, month or so, the rain system will be done and we'll put an uh, update on there. But I think besides that, uh, most of the whole enclosure has been covered. Uh, Not anything specific or of big importance, I'll say it like that, in terms of the building that I can think of. Awesome. Uh, mostly uh, what I can tell people, uh, when you do a build like this, make sure also to go over every part you do and make sure you sealed everything off, both in waterproofing, but also just in escapability. Mm. We all know that snakes are very, very good at finding the weak spots in setups. So, um, yeah. When you build something of this size, it's quite easy to overlook one or two. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
that's great advice from uh, someone who has built an incredible enclosure. So Anka, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much thank for sharing for your me. the enclosure and the build and being on the podcast to talk about it. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Um, as I said, it's the first time I uh, talked about the enclosure like this and it was great fun. Really happy when people want to hear more about it because all I can hope is that it inspires people to provide their animals with bigger setups and not stick to the idea of to small uh, smaller is better nature is big your yes. enclosure can be big too yeah absolutely yeah yeah you definitely have inspired people so that's fantastic all right that is the end of that episode anka thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and talking about how you actually constructed this enclosure as i said through the intro and as we were kind of saying at the end there even if somebody isn't going to build an enclosure this large there's so much you can learn from somebody like you who's actually gone ahead and done something like this so if you're out there and you're wanting to build your own enclosure whether it's the same size as this one or maybe something that's a quarter of the size or smaller or something in between i'm sure there's something you pulled from this episode that you can learn to or that you can utilize in your own project and it's also nice just you know when somebody's working with a, a species like a false water cobra that are going to challenge every piece of integrity and <laughs> your ability to clean and all these different things that like a false water cobra will do we know if it works with that species it's probably going to carry over to almost any other species uh, quite effortlessly so it's sort of nice to you know use that as a test species so anyway anka thank you so much for joining me listeners thank you so much for listening to the episode if you did enjoy it make sure you share it on social media if you are listening on the audio version i guess this is probably something i should have mentioned in the intro we do have lots of clips and videos of anka's enclosure in the youtube version of the episode so you might want to double back and go there or just go check out her instagram or her facebook page all that is in or sorry not facebook her youtube channel all that is in the show notes so if you want to check it out there you can do that if you want to join us over on patreon to have early access to episodes and to have immediate access to the discord server you can do that at patreon.com slash animals at home and for really as little as 70 cents to a dollar per episode or maybe it's a little bit more maybe just a dollar 30 per episode you can really help support the podcast that really goes a long way or go check out the show's sponsor custom if you actually go check out the link in either the youtube description or the show notes that is an affiliate link so if you do make a purchase a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you and of course that helps support the show if you're looking for any more information on this episode or any other episode on the network make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com and that is it for me this week i will catch you guys in the next episode